Thank you, Pastor Todd. Served us very well with that prayer, didn't he? Uh, Any kids headed to Gospel Project? Now's your time. Hope you have a great time together. Thank you to those of you who will be leading. It's my privilege this morning to uh, share with you the latter half of Ruth chapter 1. If you have a Bible, turn with me there, and if not, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. Last week, we started our trek through this little book called Ruth. Ruth is the story of the faithfulness of God in the context of the unfaithfulness of people. The events recorded in this book took place during what verse 1 calls the day when the judges ruled. Just weefly uh, or briefly, whichever you prefer. Uh, weefly, we're going to take a moment to remember what we discussed last week in case you weren't here. This was a time period in Israel's history full of disobedience towards God, unrest, and difficulty. It involved a cyclical pattern of sin and discipline and repentance and blessing and then recycle, repeat again and again and again. Judges 21 verse 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The people did not seek on the whole to live under God's good leadership, and they had no main ruler to guide them. Um, Instead, they were devoted to themselves. So many people had a hard time during this time period. But this story is not mainly about all of Israel. It's rather about one family and the circumstances that they faced. In the opening paragraph of the book of Ruth, we see Elimelech, Naomi, Malon, and Chilion leaving the land of God's blessing in Israel to go outside of God's blessing to the idolatrous people in Moab. And then the story takes a dark turn when all three men in the family die. We're not told why, but they each die an untimely death. Naomi went to Moab seeking food. She went with a family. She ended up with food, but no family. Now all that's left is memories, along with her daughters-in-law. The family line at the end of the first paragraph is on the brink of extinction. Now that may not mean a whole lot to you, but if you were alive at this time period, to not have a son, to not have a daughter, to not have lineage, would be seen as the darkest, most difficult consequence you could ever face. Practically speaking, these three widows are in a most perilous, destitute situation. They had no land, they had no money, they had no jobs, they had no ability to make money. They were literally left without anything, including hope. Today we'll discover in the text that we'll read that Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah decided to face this crisis in three remarkably different ways. Each of them faced circumstances they could not solve on their own, and each of them chose different paths to seek to resolve this conflict. 
So as Katina comes now to read for us, would you follow along in Ruth chapter 1? And she will be reading for us 6 through 22. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, and should, and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Will you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Thank you, Katina. This uh, story revolves around home. Their first scene is somehow... Uh, Naomi heard that back at home, the famine in Israel was over. We don't know how word got to her, but it did. But we do know something in particular about why the famine came to an end. Look at verse 6. You'll notice the author is careful to specify that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now, don't imagine this is like the Jimmy John's bike. God didn't come riding into town. God instead lifted the famine. And so the rain came, the crops grew, and the harvest, therefore, came about. You see, throughout this passage, and indeed throughout the entire Bible, there's a particular worldview presented for us. It might be summarized this way. God is fully and finally in control of all God is fully and finally in control of all things. It's God who caused the rain to return. It's God who caused the drought to end. It's God who caused the wheat to grow. It's God who caused the food to be ready for harvest. It's God who turned Bethlehem, which means house of bread, back into a place in which there truly was 
plenty of bread. Now, you may remember from last week that Naomi had spent a decade away. A decade is a long, long time. And so when Naomi heard there was food back at home, she decided to take the journey. But this time, she had no husband. She had no friends. She had no sons. All that Naomi had was the slight hope that she could eke out a slightly miserable remainder of her days among her people instead of among the Moabites. And so she gathered her few possessions and started that journey back home. In verse 7, we see her heading home. And it's not difficult to imagine what each one of those steps must have felt like. Those of you in the room who have lost uh, someone to death who you love, particularly those of you in the room who have lost someone before they reached the normal time people die, those of you who have lost loved ones young, you know that when you come across circumstances or places where you were with that person, that it is like a scab being picked again and again and again. Naomi took the same journey back home that she would have traveled 10 years before. Can't you just see her remembering telling the boys to stop fighting at this spot and grabbing her husband's hand to hold it as they walked at another? Can you hear the boys laughing, chasing, throwing rocks at each other in the different spots where they chose to lie down and sleep. This time, as she journeyed home, there was no men. It was just her. Moab is in what is modern-day Jordan, and so that journey would have involved going way north to get upside of the desert and then traveling around. It would have taken days, if not weeks, step after step after step, each one bringing a memory more vivid than the last. But somehow along the way, I like to think perhaps it was at the border of Moab and Israel. So they're standing in passport control. You know how long that line is. And she turns and recognizes, I'm not actually by myself. My, my daughters-in-law have come with me. Ruth and Orpah are there too. And for some reason in that moment she recognizes, it's better for them if they don't come. And so this whole section from verse 8 to 18 is about reconsidering home. Essentially, this old widow decides to try to persuade the two young widows that their lives would be better if they go back to Moab. From verse 8 to 15, we find three passionate appeals from Naomi to her daughters-in-law each one worthy of our consideration this morning. Look at verse 8. 
The first appeal says this, but Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. These are commands. Naomi is saying to the two young ladies, go home. Now why? Well, it's not because she had gotten annoyed with them over the duration of the journey. It's because she recognized these two women were far more likely to get remarried if they stayed in their own land. Women, this was a time in which you as a woman would not have owned land. You did not get an education. You did not own anything. You had very, very, very few rights. Without a husband, you were almost sure to find yourself destitute and begging. And as Naomi thought about entering Israel, she vividly recognized these women are not going to find Israelite men. They are far better off staying among their own people where there won't be cultural trappings that keep them from finding new husbands. In essence, she wanted them to have a better life than she had had. She was more concerned with them than with herself. For time's sake, we won't read it again, but then the next thing she says is she pronounced a blessing on these two. She prayed a prayer, we might say. And the content of this prayer is largely her giving them something so critical in the Old Testament. It's called hesed. She prayed over them and blessed them, wishing upon them the loving kindness of God, the faithfulness of God, the hope that's found only in God. It's a tender, precious moment. But then in their reply, both daughters-in-law say, I'm not going back. We aren't going back. And so Naomi made her second appeal. Verse 11, Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Sometimes when we read the Bible, it's easy to forget these are real people in real places, and there's real drama. There's emotion. I think in this next sentence, There is incredible irony. And probably, Naomi had a bit of a chuckle. Here's what she said. Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Naomi, tongue-in-cheek, essentially makes her case by saying, I'm too old to have a husband. She's probably saying, I'm past the age of being able to have children. I'm too old for kids. But then her argument continues. Even if I was to get a husband today, and we were to have sex today, and we were to conceive today, and I was to get pregnant today, and and not only pregnant with one, but pregnant with two, and they both turned out to be boys, and they were born today. Do you see how she's piling up the impossibilities? And if all of that happened, and the boys were here today, would you therefore wait until they were old enough marry. And even if you did that, then you would be like me, 
you'd be past the point of having your own children. She's painting a picture here of complete hopelessness. If you come with me, you will not, in fact, ever have children. Now, as I look around the room this morning, there's many, many here who don't have children. This is an exceedingly different day than the days of this story. You see, in the days of this story, the most important thing about you was, are you continuing the family line? Is the name going to spread beyond you to the next generation? And so to not have kids was a sign of great shame. Naomi doesn't want that for her daughters-in-law. She wants the best for them. And perhaps additionally, she at an emotional level knew that if they return with her, then they are headed for a decade like she had. You see, she'd spent time as a refugee. She knew what it was like to be an outsider. She was familiar with everywhere you go, there's people staring, and no one wants you there. And she knew the chances of these young women being accepted among the Israelites was slim to none. And so in this second appeal, she persuades them, go back to Moab, get a Moabite minivan, buy a house, have babies, go to Petra for vacation. Don't have a life like the one I've had. And then in the latter half of verse 13, Naomi draws down the strongest piece of her argument. She says, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She says to these two young women she loves, you're far better off not coming with me because God's against me. I have disobeyed God, and therefore the covenant curses have fallen upon me. And the hand of God, at least right now, she's saying, is not full of generosity and grace. It's full of discipline. God himself has brought hardship on me get away from me and maybe it will go better for you. Now, it's at this point in the story, the first woman reaches her conclusion about how to handle this crisis. See, each of us, when we face difficulties, will have to choose how we will respond. My dad, this used to drive me absolutely nuts as a child would tell me, son, it's not so much what happens to you that matters, but how you choose to respond to it. Gosh darn it, he was right. In this story, we're going to see people react in different ways with very different results. The first woman to make a decision is Orpah. Orpah decides, I've heard enough. You can almost see her putting her hands over her ears saying, I'm finished. And then she turns around and starts her way back to Moab. 
Frankly, in many ways, she makes the sensible choice. She does what ought to have been done. She does what's expected. She makes her way back to her own people to begin a new life. She chose a better beginning. And yet, friend, hear this closely. When she made that turn back to Moab, that turn meant not only did she return to Moab, but she walked off the pages of the biblical story. You see, as far as we know, her journey back to Moab included choosing again to follow Moabite gods and live among Moabite people. And maybe she had a very wonderful next several decades. Maybe she got a good man and had a bunch of kids. And maybe they grew old to take care of her. But friend, even a smooth life in this world without God is not near as important as a hard life now and a life of bounty under God's grace forever. Be careful what you choose in crisis. She chose the familiar and safe route, the way of the world, we might call it, a way of focused on ease today without consideration of the agony of judgment for eternity. That's what Orpah decided. But Ruth, Ruth has a bit more spunk. Ruth said, no, I'm not going. I'm staying put. And so in the third and final appeal in verse 15, we hit the climactic moment in which Naomi pulls out all the stops. She said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people And if there were music and this was a movie, it would be going boom, 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 boom to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. These are stunning words. Friends, remember who Naomi was. She was one whose ancestors had been led out of Egypt by God, preserved in the desert by God, given the blessings of the promised land by God. She was part of the people of whom God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And yet she tells her daughter-in-law, Go back to your gods. Naomi was in such a dark place that she found herself unconcerned. Unconcerned even about a loved one's lack of relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, we ought to plead with God to keep us from ever being in that dark of a place. So consumed with self care that we don't even notice where other people are spiritually. But it didn't matter. Ruth had made up her mind. She was going with Naomi irrespective of the cost. 
And her response is one of the most brilliant speeches in any ancient literature. It's worth certainly reading again, verse 16. Ruth said, don't urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. And then to demonstrate the extent of her commitment, she says, where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. And then the oath. May the Lord do so to me and more. If anything but death parts me from you. What a speech. Ruth with dignity, with honor, with respect, with guts. Says, I'm not going anywhere except with you. She displays heroic commitment. The hased that Naomi had prayed over for Ruth. Ruth is already showing to her. The person in the story who ought not have been aware of or able to show commitment is the one who, in fact, does. In covenantal language, Ruth committed herself to Naomi, Naomi's people, and Naomi's God. Now, consider with me the fact that she didn't know the rest of the story. If you've read the next three chapters, you know what happens. You know how this story ends. But she didn't. As far as Ruth knew, in this moment, she was committing herself by drawing this line in the sand to being destitute, poor, hungry, widowless. Both of them, widows, childless, for the rest of her life. She did not know what was to come. Ruth committed herself to God and God's people for she knew this was the right decision. Friends, Ruth's response to crisis is a model for us today of genuine biblical faith. Faith is not the belief that if we simply trust God, then our next days and weeks and months and years will be full of ease. That's not faith. Faith is not the ability to look ahead and to see, if I follow God, then I'll get that job, or I'll get that spouse, or my health will be better, or my relationships will improve. No, faith is the confidence that Jesus died and rose again. And that his life for our life means life with him forever. Faith is the assurance that God's in control and that human beings rightly see him as our creator and we obey. Faith is the confidence in what we don't see, not the guarantee of ease. She, Ruth, only knew, I want to go with Naomi. I want Naomi's God. I want Naomi's people. That's it. Friend, if you're here today and you are not a Christian, 
You don't need every question you have to be answered. You don't have to know everything about every verse in the Bible. What you do need to know is that God is the creator and you and I are the created. And as such, we are obligated to him. And yet each of us have chosen at a fork in the road to again and again and again go the way of Orpah. We have chosen to go our own way, pretend like we are our own gods. But the invitation of the Bible, what we Christians call the gospel, is that Jesus holds out a different and better way. Friend, if you would turn from a life without God to a life with God, if you would recognize your need for Him, if you would confess your sin and believe that Jesus died and rose again, then by God's grace, you too can go the way of Ruth. You too can have her God as your God and his people as your people. Sure, there are more questions to be answered, but you can spend the rest of your life searching for those answers. But this is the essential message of the Bible. You face a fork in the road. Which way is it going to be? Orpah or Ruth? The last few verses that Katina read for us involve arriving at home. Upon making their way back to Bethlehem, entering through the city gates, Naomi's response to crisis becomes abundantly clear. We've seen what Orpah chose. Orpah chose the easy way. Orpah chose the safe way. Orpah chose what she knew. Orpah chose a life of idolatry. We've seen what Ruth chose. Ruth chose, as far as she knew, a much more difficult path, a path that she believed was the right path, a path in which she drew a line in the sand and said, Ruth, I'm with you and your God and your people forever. And then she gave that coffee mug verse, that one we plaster on walls and wear on shirts and carry on mugs, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. But what about Naomi? What did Naomi choose? Well, before we read it, consider one detail this text includes. It says that the town is a buzz. No, not that thing one or two of you felt last night that you weren't supposed to. Stop doing that. This buzz was the murmur of the people. Imagine this old woman who probably looked far older than she actually was. There's a way in which Terrible hardship affects us not only spiritually and emotionally, but even physically. As they walk through town together, you can hear the crowd. Is that a Moabite? What does she think she's doing here? Naomi? That can't be 
She looks horrible. And where's her family? She had a husband and the kids. I always knew she was a bad woman. Don't tell her that house near us is for rent. She's dirty. She's nasty. God has judged her. Have you felt the sting of gossip? The whole town is a buzz. And to them, particularly the women, she says in verse 20, don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. You catch the irony there? They left because they had no food. They were starving. But yet as she looks back on that, she says, I went away full meaning she had her family. And the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Brothers and sisters, what do you make of Naomi's theology? We sometimes pretend today that we don't do doctrine. Doctrine's bad. Doctrine divides. Just avoid that stuff and just believe in Jesus. But the problem is you cannot escape doctrine. Doctrine is everywhere. Doctrine is how we operate. You see, we live out of what we believe. And so what do you believe about what Naomi believed? In one sense, she's right. Theologically speaking, she has spoken truth. You see, the, the Bible from beginning to end says that God is fully and finally in charge. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing happens that is somehow outside of the purview of God. God knows all things, controls all things, providentially brings about all things, and does so without breaking a sweat. Jesus himself said in Matthew 10 that not even a sparrow falls to the earth except by the providential plan of God. Now, church, I say all of that recognizing that for some of us that is exceedingly hard to hear. But that is no doubt the point being made, not only here, but on nearly every page of the entire Scripture. Church, we need to recover a correct, robust, big view of God. A God who's sovereign over all things is far better than a God who misses some things. A God whose providence plans all things, is far better than a God who's surprised by a few things. 
A God who never sleeps and sees all is a God who sometimes sleeps and misses some. The God of the Scriptures is a providential, sovereign ruler. Now, that doesn't mean we understand everything about everything that happens. That doesn't mean that everything happens in exactly the same way with the same causation. But it does mean that like one of those things called you put spaghetti in, colander, like a colander, none of the events pass through our lives without first going through the colander of God's sovereign But don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Just because Naomi was right in her theology about the sovereignty of God does not mean she's a person to be imitated. She is, in fact, not. There are times in which we get some things right in our thinking about God, and yet we get other things incredibly wrong in our implications and applications of how we think about God. You see, what happened to Naomi is what will happen to you if you are not exceedingly careful. Naomi had been turning from God in hardship instead of turning to God in hardship. And the result of that was her bitterness. In Naomi's sin before her suffering and then in her hurt after her suffering, Her response was to be hardened. The same sun that shone down and softened the heart of Ruth to respond to God is the same sun that shone down and hardened Naomi's heart. Brothers and sisters, let this serve as a warning to us. Hardship will come. There will be things happen to you that you never dreamed would happen to you. The best way to prepare is not then. The best day to prepare is now. Asking God to keep you from the bitterness, the hardening that happened to Naomi. Naomi is a stark reminder, not of what to do, but in fact of what not to do. She was not broken, she was not repentant, she was hardened, and she was bitter. Read through this carefully. She took no accountability, no responsibility. She still believed in God, but she didn't like Him. She only had blame for Him. We might say it this way, Naomi had right doctrine, but Naomi did not have right devotion. Only the two together can sufficiently sustain us through the trials of life. Christian, you and I will be tempted to the same end. When bitterness sets in, the next thing that follows is blindness. 
Naomi was blind. She was blind to the way in which God was beginning to provide for her. Look at verse 21. I went away full. The Lord brought back me empty. Is that true? No. A young woman at great cost and risk to herself had just pledged full, complete, lifelong commitment to her. She was probably standing right next to her as she said those words. Yes, she lost her husband and kids, but no, she was not empty. God was indeed providing for her. She had Ruth. Ruth declared total commitment. Friends, when we suffer, we will be tempted to move from suffering to anger. Bottling up that anger, we will be tempted to bitterness. That bitterness, left unchecked, becomes blindness. And that blindness causes us to miss the new budding growth of God. In her pain, she exaggerated her hopelessness and was blind to the new provisions of God. Christians, God often takes bitter circumstances and uses them to turn us into something new. But you will, in fact, miss that something new if you're blinded by bitterness. Regardless of the reason for your present or past suffering, may today be a day in which we all choose not to go the way of Orpah, not to go the way of Naomi, but confidently, joyfully, to go the way of Ruth. Let's take a moment in quiet prayer. I'm going to ask Pastor Tad if he would come and pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word that is this morning certainly applicable to everyone in this room. God, for those that identify most with Orpah right now, I pray that they would not leave this room to return to their gods, their idols, that they would instead turn to you. And God, for those that identify with Ruth, I, I rejoice in that and thank you for their, their faithfulness. May they continue to seek you over all else. And for those that identify most with Naomi, Father, I ask that um, they would admit their bitterness, their resentment, their anger at you, that they would share that with another believer here this morning, that they would turn themselves over to you and recognize the ways that you do bless them, the ways that you have cared for them. God, we thank you for this word that you've given us this morning.
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.